0: I basically had a complete mental breakdown after having a baby.
1: I was getting more and more tired, more and more irritable, not eating as much, not
0: sleeping. And then it started to spiral really out of control. It has made me so much stronger now. It's made me address stuff that I hadn't addressed. Of actually
1: getting to a point where I could say, I'm really happy now.
0: A huge welcome to the You, Me and PND podcast. My name is Rian Hall. And today I am joined by the lovely Cheyenne Hamid. Cheyenne, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself very briefly?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a specialist registrar doctor in the NHS and I've got two kids. And I've been through, well, still going through my postnatal depression and anxiety journey. I hate the word journey. (laughs) I'm going to use it anyway. Um, And... In fact, that's how you and I met, wasn't it, almost yeah. a year ago? Mm, um, right. We met at a postnatal support group. Yeah, I mean, I think I was further down my journey <laughs> you, than you were, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right.
0: So you you were there with your second yes. child. Yes, yeah. And I had had my first, well, I say first, my only child. And I was really unwell at the time. I had really, really bad postnatal depression. Yeah. And... Since then, we've both come a really, really long way considering where we were initially. And having been through that experience, I thought it was really important that we could talk to other people about their stories and get a deeper conversation going around postnatal depression. So that's the point of this podcast. We're going to refer to postnatal mental illness generally as PND. But when we do that, we mean anxiety, depression, um, Obsessive compulsive disorder, that kind of thing. So you might be suffering from postnatal depression or you might know someone who is. It might be your wife, your husband, your partner, your friend, your daughter, your sister, uh, your brother, an employee, whoever you are in whatever your situation. Welcome and thank you so much for being here. Before we go into a little bit about our stories, Shian, I thought it would be really helpful for us to set out at the beginning some of the things that we know now that weren't apparent to us at the time. So I don't know about you, but one of the things that really stuck out for me is the isolation I felt in the beginning. And now I would say to anybody going through this, you are not alone. Yeah, definitely.
1: I remember I, you didn't meet me when I was at my lowest point. No. Um I think it's a really, really lonely place to be, actually. But one of the best things about these support groups is that you actually appreciate that there are so many people going through the same thing as you.
0: Mm. I went from thinking, there must be something wrong with me. I'm the only person that must feel this bad, to sitting amongst those amazing women in that group and realising this is an illness and there are people also suffering from this. So that was huge for me. And the other thing that that support group really showed me was that you will get better with support. I'm very open about saying I didn't have a bond with my daughter when she was born. I was so ill. I didn't have that bond. Mm. And now we have an amazing, amazing relationship and she's absolutely brilliant and I love her to bits and she's such a fantastic little thing. Even without P&D, you know, it's difficult sometimes to bond with somebody you don't know and you don't understand how to work with them. You don't understand what they want sometimes. You can't reason with them. You can't. You, you can't communicate, communicate with them. Exactly. But then add P&D into that. And it is really difficult for a lot of mums to feel that connection. And I think they're thinking, oh, my goodness, I've got no bond. There's an issue with the bond here. I don't
1: like my child. I don't like
0: my child. How do I tell people? What that? have I done? <laughs> Why have I had a baby? Yeah. All of that stuff. Is often internalized, and the more you internalize it, the worse it is.
1: Oh yeah, I'm I'm a horrible person because yeah, I'm I am not love my star. child
0: if I'm if yeah. I'm thinking. And like you it. start thinking, oh my goodness, am I have I made this massive mistake? And then you're around people in your NCT group who are saying, oh, I love it. Even if they wake up from like 11 p.m. to 4 a.m., as soon as they give me that smile that just makes up for it and I was just sitting there thinking that does not make up for it. Nothing is making up for how awful I'm feeling right now. A lot of that was PND but some of that was just the sheer difficulty of parenting stage in the beginning. But one of the things that I couldn't see then mm. which I now see is that you will enjoy your life again. Oh yeah. I mean as bad as it can get it is temporary. Yeah and it's remembering that isn't it? Yeah. And it's it's not your fault. If you have postnatal depression you have anxiety that is not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. Nobody chooses to suffer in that way. The other thing I want to say there's help and support out there. So please reach for it. We have both been incredibly supported and helped through our postnatal depression support group. But there are resources out there for you. The UMI and PND website has lots of useful resources for anybody struggling. And asking for help is brave and it's courageous, it is not weak don't suffer in silence, don't suffer on your own.
1: Yeah, hopefully you wouldn't feel embarrassed or self-conscious about you know seeing someone because you've got, I don't know, asthma or diabetes or a heart condition or something. So this shouldn't
0: be any different. And that's exactly why we're doing this podcast. And in the coming weeks, we're going to hear more brave stories from incredible women about their experiences. And we'll also hear more about support available for mums and dads suffering from PND and about wellbeing ideas and important self-care for when we are feeling particularly vulnerable and really struggling. But today's podcast is around our stories. So do you want to just tell us more about what happened with you and and where you are at the moment with everything? Yeah, so
1: I've got two boys. I've been a mother now for almost five years. can't believe it. And um, in hindsight, I definitely had postnatal depression and postnatal anxiety after my first son, but it wasn't as obvious. And perhaps, perhaps I had a degree of depression and anxiety even before then. But really, everything came to a head after I had my second son. It was about, gosh, now I can't, how embarrassing, I can't remember how old he is. He's 18 months old now. Um, everything went straight forward. It was the hottest day of the year. The air conditioning broke down in the hospital and I was, you know, lying there with my newborn baby, sweating like an absolute horse. <laughs> I, th- I think horses sweat anyway. Um, but, you know, it, about the first night, and aside from that, I thought everything was fine. You know, we came home. My older son seemed to take to him initially really quickly. And, you know, you read about the, you know, kids perhaps sometimes regressing a little bit when they've got a younger sibling. And that didn't happen for the first couple of weeks. And I thought, oh, God, we dodged a bullet there, haven't we? But then all of a sudden, he did, just having a few more meltdowns and that sort of thing and refusing his food and, um, you know, biting his toys a little bit more and that sort of thing. And I think this is where the anxiety started to kick in, like about a month or so. I started being a bit paranoid about these sort of things. And I just decided that he must have a developmental disorder. Okay. And I started really becoming quite obsessed with it. I wasn't having problems bonding with my little one. Okay. I was I was, all of a sudden became distant from my older son.
0: Right, okay.
1: And I started nitpicking at everything and almost like writing everything down, becoming obsessive. Looking up on the internet, you know, I'm going to end up having to be his carer. And it, it was odd in that respect because I wasn't doing it with the baby. Yeah. Um, to me, the baby was perfect, you know. And the baby is going to end up, you know, suffering as a result of him being abnormal. or
0: You're not well. Your mind no. isn't well. The ability to rationalise and be objective is so... So difficult. Goes you, completely
1: out the window. Yep. When
0: you've got PND, you can't do that. No.
1: There was almost an embarrassment. I was just like, I can't I can't let him be around people. I wasn't taking him out. Mm. I was keeping, keeping him indoors with me. Um, I wasn't really telling my husband about it initially. I was um, reading about it online, you know, at night time when I was supposed to be resting. You know, I'd be up on my phone until four o'clock in the morning. I, I must have ordered a gazillion books off Amazon about this mm. You know,
0: I went through a similar thing with my daughter where it just reminded me of when you said about your son and not w- wanting him to see other people, mm. I had a really disproportionate reaction to her having eczema I was so worried about this eczema and thought it was so bad that I wanted to cover her all the time in baby grows, I didn't want anybody to see her skin and I also went through a few weeks of not wanting other people to see her Everyone around me was like, what are you talking about? She just has a bit of eczema. But to me, this was the biggest thing in the world. It was like I felt ashamed of other people seeing her.
1: Oh, definitely. I I completely uh, agree with you on that.
0: So when did you... You said you're googling all this stuff. You're yeah. staying up all night, looking into things. When did you start thinking, hang on a sec, I don't think that things are things are as they should be here?
1: Um, I was getting more and more tired, more and more irritable, not eating as much, not sleeping, and then it started to spiral really out of control. And I re- and then I was just sat there, just crying for no reason. So was this
0: past the two-week period now? You were still crying a lot.
1: So this was between four weeks and six weeks, but this was spiralling really rapidly out of control. That's what I mean. It's also, I went from being okay to being this wreck who was crying all the time. Mm. I couldn't sit down at the table. Even every time I was sat there trying to feed my baby, I was crying through it. I didn't want to speak to my husband. I didn't want him near me. I didn't want him to touch me. You know, every time my, my eldest son came up to me, I just wanted him to go away. Then things got really dark, and I started fantasizing about um, what if I what if I left, you know? What if I just took the baby with me and left? I can't love my, my son like this, mm. you know. And my my husband loves him unconditionally, and I can't love him unconditionally. So maybe they're better off if I leave. Mm. And then he rapidly went from leaving my husband and leaving my my eldest son and going for my baby to. Sort of ending my own life. Okay. They're better off without me. Everything just spiraled out of control. And then when the worst point came where I thought, actually, no, it's not just me that's a problem, it's my eldest son. So I started envisaging scenarios um where both of us died. Okay. It was obsessive. It was obsessive. I kept on rethinking this scenario over mm. and over and so over. So it was again. very
0: intrusive all the time. All the time. All the time. Which is what I had in it is absolutely horrific because yeah. it's the sound you cannot stop that loop going over and over no. again and they are extremely dark awful thoughts and that's the difficulty of not being able to escape yourself mm. is so awful yeah what were the next steps how did you end up getting help when you were in that situation
1: my health visitor came um, to do a sort of routine like six or seven week check or something and she was the first person other than my husband obviously um who I didn't know before, who was a complete stranger, who had asked me how I was, and I just something just overcame me, and I'd been crying ten minutes before she'd even come. Right, just burst into tears, and I was just like, I just don't see a way past this. And she was just like, Have you have you thought about hurting yourself? And she and I I couldn't answer her, but that I think that was enough. She was just like, Okay. And she made an appointment for my GP to see me the next day.
0: Is that when you started going to go into the Cedar House group then?
1: Within a week, I was seen by my GP twice. Yeah. My health sister came and visited me a few times. I was referred to Liz, although she's not, you know, she, her, the group isn't NHS. That's it's a different. private it's charity. It's pr- private it? charity. Yeah. And I was plugged into the um, postnatal maternity psychiatric services at my local hospital. And I'd seen a consultant psychiatrist within the space of seven days I'd been started on medication you know so it all happened really 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 quickly like it saved, it saved my life and Friday I went to the group and there were about six or seven other mums and um it came to me and they were like you know do you want to introduce yourself and I was like yeah yeah I'm Cheyenne I'm you know I've had my baby six weeks ago and this is him and um I've just been feeling really low and they were like it sort of spiralled, and it was like a verbal diarrhea. I kept going and going and going and going and going, and I just couldn't stop myself. Mm. And as I was talking, I didn't even realise, but I was like, there were tears streaming down my face.
0: Mm. And how did the how did the room respond to that?
1: I thought they would look at me and be like,
0: <gasps> "My God!"
1: But they were all just, "It's okay."
0: Mm. So understanding, yeah, aren't they
1: they sort of sat there and they nodded, and I was just like.
0: Because they've probably had thoughts like that. Yeah. Why aren't they horrified? Why aren't they calling the police? And even though they're awful feelings and they're so, so dark, knowing somebody else is experiencing something similar, you kind of think, oh my goodness, it's not just me. All of that shame just goes away and it somehow feels so cathartic being able to speak them. The other thing you mentioned was you were feeling suicidal and I wanted to be really clear that asking somebody if they are having thoughts of ending their life is recommended it's not something that you should think I can't ask that I don't want to put ideas in somebody's head they've done research it is actually recommend a recommended practice if anybody is thinking of harming themselves or their child it's really important that they speak to somebody your midwife your health visitor, your GP, you go to A&E and say it's a mental health emergency, you call your GP, surgery, or if you're under the perinatal team, those services are there to support. They're not there to go, right, I'm going to put you in prison now. Yeah. So you started on the medication and you were going to the support group. You were under the perinatal psych team. Where are you now and how did you get there?
1: Well, within a few days, I started seeing a little bit of light. I mean, this this has got nothing to do with the medication, by the way, because it wouldn't have kicked in, but. By that Because it can take, what, two to six weeks sometimes? Yes. And I'd been on it for like two days. But just getting it out into the open and talking about it is basically the first step to sort of, you know, starting to recover, I think, or yeah. at least trying to fight your way through this, this horrible myth. I started the medication. I increased the doses gradually. I saw the perinatal team went through CBT, um, came to the group every week, I didn't really make a significant improvement until a few weeks down the line and then a few months down the line and then I think by the time I met you and this was about six, seven months later Mm. I'd probably say I was about 50,
0: 60% better Mm -hmm. Yeah, you seemed you were managing well you were recovering really well by that point
1: I think at that point I was like I'm a 7 out of 10 You know, and then Mm -hmm. gradually a few weeks went by and I was an eight out of ten. And then I was an eight and a half out of ten. And I think it probably took the best part of a year Mm -hmm. of seeing the psychiatrist, being on medication, on increased doses of medication, going to the group, having all these different therapies, you know, of actually getting to a point where I could say, I'm really happy now. Mm. Is that how you feel? Oh, definitely. And I'd say now that I'm probably the happiest I've been in all of my adult
0: life. That's amazing.
1: I'm still on the medication, mind yeah. you. But that's just there to sort of help me stay stable. But if I stay on this medication for the rest of my life, then... Mm. And you might do. It might do, then, yeah. you know, so be it. It's a tiny little pill that I have to take every day. Yeah. And it makes me better. Like, it really has an impact on your your ability to be intimate as well. Oh, gosh, yeah. With your other half. I remember just yeah. being like, oh, God, what excuse am I going to have to come up with now? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I it every- kills your libido <gasps> oh, completely. Yeah,
1: yeah, totally. Not the medication, being off it, being unwell. Like I would literally, oh, look yeah, yeah. At- any excuse, I'd be like, oh, God, I've got a headache. I think I'm coming down with a cold. Um, <laughs> even at one point, I made up that I had a hemorrhoid. <laughs> like, no, no, I have a hemorrhoid. You can't come near me. <laughs> like, What's that got to do with anything? I, I, just, I just don't feel right. I've got a hemorrhoid and I'm just going to keep thinking about my hemorrhoid. <laughs> and I'm
0: like, now you're on your meds. Yeah. You're over That's that That's fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Cheyenne, you've been absolutely incredible. You're so brave and you're so brilliant. I just love talking to you thank you so much oh, All right. so
1: tell us about what happened with you
0: I basically had a complete mental breakdown after having a baby mm. I was fixated on having this natural water birth and I really wanted to have a home birth initially and then found out I was breech and that just sent me into a tailspin, I was desperately trying to avoid surgery because I knew the impact it could have on my mental health, not being able to exercise a big thing for me was I had to an ecv where they try and turn the baby manually with their hands and i didn't know how painful that was going to be mm. and basically i think i think i had ptsd after that procedure
1: i'm not surprised it, i remember going oh god
0: it was awful
1: yeah i remember at medical school cuz i was in the same position you you, were my preach, my my first really? mm. was
0: breech yeah did you have an ecv then
1: no i didn't because i'd seen them mm. and i'd re- i was just like oh i don't really want to go through it yeah. so when i went to have my ultrasound scan I then went home and started sitting upside down for like. Oh, I did
0: that. I hung, I hung off a wash, no, an ironing board. I propped an ironing board on. There's a website called Spinning Babies. Oh yeah. So I started hanging off all the furniture upside down like a That's bat for a few days, yeah. and that didn't work. Yeah. But for yeah. me, I think my anxiety was starting to rise then, even though I hadn't had my baby. And then I had the ECV, which was the worst thing I've ever had mm. happened to me. And it was really brutal for me. Some people don't find it that painful. It was really excruciating for me. And I think I was shaking. I was feeling really sick. I cried the whole weekend. And I think everything just went downhill after that. It was like a flick switched and, and switch flicked. What's that switch phrase? Switch flicked. Yeah. Switch yeah. Flicked? yeah. Um, The ECV didn't work, so then I was going to have another ECV on the Monday. I had really bad, like bruising all around my stomach. And then on the Monday, uh, Sunday, I was all geared up for having this ECV the next day, but I'd been through this dilemma with my family, shall I, shan't I, and they were all saying, don't put yourself through it. But I really wanted to have that birth I wanted, which I was obsessed with. And then my waters just spontaneously broke then, and we hadn't felt the baby move. So I was crying saying, oh, the ECV killed the baby and then we were driving to the hospital. We just in, we just started in a frenzy and it never stopped from that point. We forgot the loads of the stuff we were supposed to take to the hospital. We forgot. I had amniotic fluid all over the place. I had walking around the streets with towels wrapped around me and amniotic fluid leaking everywhere. I was crying saying, oh, we've lost the baby. I haven't felt the baby move properly since the ECV. And we were just in a complete panic from then. And then I ended up having a cesarean as soon as I got to the hospital pretty much but then like got to the hospital half a seven. Annabelle was born less than two hours later I'd, I'd been you know scrubbed up, had cesarean, and oh, we didn't end up getting a a bed in the hospital and on the ward, so we were on this transitional ward. They were drilling right outside our curtain because they were doing maintenance to the hospital, so we didn't sleep even when the baby was sleeping. And it just turned into, like, a comedy of errors, basically. Everything went wrong. Couldn't breastfeed her. Ended up being readmitted because she was dehydrated. I was crying all the time at home. I spent ages um, expressing 120 millilitres of breast milk. My boyfriend spilt it all immediately. Oh, God. And I just went ballistic. I, like, I, I literally I went ballistic. And I was screaming, nah, the breath I was just like I was possessed. And I hear you. And then the breastfeeding thing just took over me. I became obsessed with it. And I was getting all this advice that I should stay up all night, you know, not all night, but I should get up and pump when she was sleeping. So I just drove myself into the ground. And then I started watching her sleep and thinking she's gonna die in the night. So I was watching her breathing monitor for hours on end. Ten days in, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. And I started thinking that I wanted to kill myself 10 days in.
1: Oh, so yours yours was really early on after Yeah,
0: yeah. so really early on. Yeah. And I went to see the doctor and told him that I had been on some medication before and that I, want, I was suicidal, I didn't want to be here, but I wasn't thinking of acting on it because I didn't want Annabelle not to have a mum. And he said, unfortunately, let's not rush to put you back on any medication. You've just been through a series of trauma and just get your family down to help you. And basically, from that 10 days to six weeks, just got worse and worse and worse. My mood massively crashed around four weeks. And then I got to my six week checkup. And yeah, just didn't feel connection with her, hated motherhood, thought this was the worst thing I've ever done. I remember saying very clearly to the doctor, This has been the worst 10 days of my life. And my boyfriend crying, saying, We've got a child. How can you say that? And I was genuinely serious. This is the worst 10 days of my life. I went on meds, they put me on a very low dose of medication, antidepressant, Unfortunately, I didn't get great care from my GPs initially. Um, They told me it was going to take four to six weeks to kick in, but they didn't increase the dose, so I spent four to six weeks basically in a deeply dark depressive state without really getting proper support. I wasn't plugged into any services because at the time there weren't any perinatal services where I lived, and I was really ill. But I wasn't on medication at an effective dose, so I was basically put on a very low dose and told just to hang on in there for four to six weeks. And basically that four to six weeks came and went. And by the six-week point, I was about to kill myself. And I ended up then, because I was so suicidal, ended up going to A&E. And at A&E, they then moved me up the medication very quickly, within a few days. The crisis team became involved... Uh, Things just didn't improve and I ended up basically in a situation where I was about to kill myself and then ended up going into a mother and baby unit. Their psychiatrist came with a specialist and they basically came to my house the day after I was going to kill myself and said, we've got paperwork in in our briefcases which will section you so you can go voluntarily to keep you safe or we'll section you. So I didn't really have a choice. Uh, The mother and baby unit was three hours' drive away. Where was that? In Bristol. But my family's in Cardiff, but we were obviously in London, so in some ways it was good because my friends and family were in Cardiff, but, you know, Annabelle's dad was in London because that's where a bed became available. It was a really cold January morning. It was pitch black. We had to get up at, like, 5.30 to miss the rush hour, and I just remember thinking... How have I got to this place? My life is out of control. I'm, I'm losing my mind. I was really, really worried. I hadn't lost touch with reality. I hadn't been psychotic. But I just convinced myself that I was never coming out of that psych unit. And then it was a very, very gradual process of changing medication.
1: What was it like in the mother and baby unit? Or did you have your own space? and
0: So in that unit, you walked in. And there was a shared area with a little TV and some sofas and a small garden with some patio furniture. And uh, there was a little play area for the children, so they had baby bouncers and they had mats for the little babies to play on. You all had cupboards with your baby's name on. And that was when I knew things were bad because when I got there, her cupboard, the cupboard was labelled with Annabelle's name and it was laminated and I thought, Oh my gosh she's got her own cupboard and it's laminated I'm going to be here for ages ended up staying there for 9 weeks there was glass windows that were tinted we could see out of them people couldn't see into us you couldn't open the windows they had this sort of like circular like button knob thing that you you could twist to get a little bit of air in but obviously the rooms are designed to be completely safe so you can't dismantle anything the beds molded to the floor there's nothing dangerous in, in the shower room. The shower is like one of those little um, metal showers you get in those changing rooms. Like a tiny trickle comes out and you press it for five seconds and then a tiny, tiny bit more comes out. Oh, there was a viewing panel in the room, so they would look through the viewing panel every 60 minutes to make sure that you were still breathing and there was a green light above your head, which was on all night. And when the green dimmed light wasn't on... And if you wanted light, there were these really, really sharp, luminous lights. You know, there's kind of fluorescent lighting that gives you a headache. It was like that. Um, I could just see the shining torches coming in through the pane of the viewing panel each night. Uh, plastic mattresses, which are really sweaty. Mm, glam. Yeah. <laughs> and then use the shower. didn't really work. Um, but yeah, it was a place where I was seen by a psychiatrist every week. I was seen by a psychologist every week. You could talk to the nurses about how you were doing. I was on four different meds initially to get me to sleep. So Annabelle was in the nursery. The nurses would help with Annabelle in the evenings. They would encourage us to kind of chat about how we were feeling. We would sometimes sit in the garden. You know, it was baby steps. Like an event of the day was walking to... the. Costa in the concourse, getting a Costa. I just went on loads of walks on my own. It was like pretty sad, like watching. If I was watching myself from the outside, I think I would just be in tears, but I was so dissociated from what was going on then. And I still haven't cried for over a year because it's just too painful to even get to grips with. But yeah, it was just a slow process of finding medication that worked for me, starting to exercise again. I went back to hot yoga. This is the most bizarre like set up, I was in a psych unit and I, I was getting an Uber to a hot yoga studio and then coming back to the psych unit and so London, I'd be back. I'd go, right guys, I'm just getting an Uber. So I'd put Annabelle down and say, right guys, I'm going to get an Uber and do a, a 60 minute hot yoga session. And then I'd get in an Uber and then the, they'd be totally oblivious. Oh, have you had a nice day, love? Yeah, you, you've been visiting someone in the hospital, have you? And I'd be like, um, yeah, I've been in the hospital. <laughs> And then I'd go and do my hot yoga and I remember doing my first hot yoga class and thinking, oh my gosh, I actually, I'd breathe for a few moments without thinking that I hate my life and that I'm really depressed.
1: And how long had you been at the...
0: I'd been there about five weeks before I started Mm. going to yoga and started running because I couldn't do anything like that. I couldn't even read, couldn't concentrate. All I wanted to do was basically lie down and go to sleep but I couldn't even sleep. So I spent the first few weeks just wishing it was bedtime and that I could just go to sleep. When I was feeling better, I started going out and about more and meeting other mums who had PND. The meds were working a lot more then and meeting other mums was really amazing. And I think a big part of me going through depression now is understanding you can't fix anybody with depression, really. like Ultimately, the most compassionate thing you can do is sit in darkness with somebody when they are in darkness and know that as much as you want to fix them, you can't fix them, but you can sit there and you can say, you don't have to carry this on your own and I'm with you. But gradually I ended up going on some home leave, came back to London and then the weather was changing because by this time it was getting to March, sun was coming out more, my meds were working, I was exercising again These little things are so powerful, aren't they? And it wasn't just one thing. It was like meds, talking therapy, support group, diet, sleep coming in more, walking, daylight, exercise, yoga, meditation, mindfulness. Like put them together and then you start building this toolkit around you and you have this framework which is supporting you. So if one of the things drops off, then you've got other things helping you. I started singing again, which is something that I love doing and that's really You still really-
1: haven't sung for me. <laughs>
0: I will. I will. Um but yeah, I started singing again. I joined a choir. I was I started helping other people actually. So I joined Good Gym, which combines like running with doing a good deed. Hmm. So I'd get out in a group and run, which was really great to be able to run in a group, but then I'd go and visit a old people's home and clean there or go to a charity centre and build play area for kids or do some gardening for, you know, the council. Then I started talking more about my experiences. For me, it was really comfortable to share that. Yeah. No, I I know what you mean. So, a few things I wanted to wrap up with. For me, I want this to be about hope for people. So I want people to know that no matter how bad things are, and we've given two stories of pretty dark times, and we've both come through, and I would say... That I would not change having that experience because it has made me so much stronger now. It's made me address stuff that I hadn't addressed. And actually, I think I'm going to be such a better parent to Annabelle having gone through this and a better friend and like sister and daughter, just understanding how people go through these things.
1: Oh, I, I totally agree. I think, you know, it's given me a much better appreciation of the things in life which which count and which matter. And I hope it's made me a better person overall. And it stops me from being as much of an arsehole <laughs> as I can be
0: when I'm having a really bad day. Yeah, a massive part of it is is self-compassion. And In the podcast that we have coming up, we're going to talk a lot about how we can care for ourselves when we're feeling unwell. And we're also going to be looking at medication, On the next podcast we're going to be talking more about what PND is and what PND isn't and we'll also be looking at some of the myths around PND. All of the other podcasts we have will always focus on stuff that you can take away and then put in practice in your life to support you. Life skills. Life skills, exactly. So I want to say thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. It was amazing. And there are loads and loads of support services out there for people we've listed those on the Yumi and PND webpage and please please ask for help if you are struggling go to your gp speak to your health visitor speak to your midwife speak to your family members speak to your work don't suffer on your own until the next time thank you so much for joining us on Yumi and PND thanks for having me